Hello, and welcome to episode three of Experimental Practice. In this podcast, we talk about cross-genre and innovative creative work and practice. I'm your host, Sila Radowski, joined today by Alyssa Hatman. Alyssa Hatman is the author of the novel Sift and the Zine Post. Her writing has appeared in Carve, The Rumpus, The Gravity of the Thing, Propeller, Big Other, Shirley Magazine, and elsewhere. She holds an MFA in fiction from Pacific University and an MA in English literature from Portland State University. Alyssa has worked as a fiction editor, book reviewer, zine librarian, writing group facilitator, and teacher. She writes short essays for her monthly newsletter, Murmur, which also features a small press spotlight with a book giveaway and other literary updates, which I highly recommend you subscribe to. Originally from North Dakota, she now lives and teaches in the Pacific Northwest. You can find more at her website, alyssahatman.com, which will be linked in the show notes. Alyssa, I'm so happy and excited to talk with you today, and thanks so much for making the time, especially with all of the activities surrounding the entrance of your novel, Sift, into the world. Thank you for having me, Silo. It's nice to be here with you. So to start out, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background as a writer and artist. Um, Sift is so many things at once. It's very poetic and finely grained in its language. It's intellectually and ethically grounded and expansive. It's imaginative, and it's also a post-apocalyptic story with a very strong narrative drive and so much character development. We're going to be definitely talking a lot about SIFT, and to frame that discussion with at least what I perceive as that multiplicity in mind, I wanted to just start out by asking you about your path as a writer. Maybe not necessarily like the arc, um, but how your writing practice has been informed by modalities beyond just putting words on a page. Um, Or to put it more simply, what experiences do you bring with you into this chapter of your writing life? Yeah, I think... um... My writing, uh, even from a very young age, has always been uh, socially engaged. Um, You know, when I was younger, I uh, did a uh, neighborhood newsletter with a friend, uh, and we would go around and interview, uh, you know, people people in the neighborhood and put out this monthly newsletter uh, that we uh, you know, included illustrations and, um, you know, worked on editing together. Uh, and even then, it to me felt like the reason I was doing this was connection, wanting to build these connections in the neighborhood. And I was a very sort of uh, shy uh, young person. And so um, I found comfort in the written word, uh, whether it was reading or, you know, just trying to, uh, you know, work out a sentence and spend some time, you know, making it clear or beautiful. Uh, And so I, you know, 
I spent a lot of time with, with books and with writing, and I used it as a way of connecting with others uh, to have this sort of neighborhood newsletter was a good project uh, that I, that I could, I could uh, use to connect. Um, and so that, I think, you know, progressed as I got older. I, um, in high school, I started getting into zines. And during that time, I really found that, like, personal zines or Riot Girl zines were um, a, you know, a, a form that I really connected with. Um, I, you know, it was one of the first times where I was reading uh, about experiences that I could really, I think, relate to. Um, it was through zines, but also I think, you know, some some poetry too during during this time in high school as well. Um, so I, I, I think it was, you know, I can even kind of chart the progression from, you know, reading these zines to um, writing, uh, being inspired to write the work uh, that, you know, I felt could be uh, more socially engaged. So I shared, you know, I wrote zines, I shared them, and then uh, very quickly got kind of um, uh, this, I guess, sense of connection with the, um, the zine community at the time, which also meant that I was um, doing maybe more social activism and um, more protests and these kind of things that were more like, um, you know, on the ground engaged. And so I sort of saw that, you know, uh, progression now, like sort of looking back that the writing when, that I was doing early on um, always had that sort of... Uh, uh, socially engaged, engaged element. And then when I went on to, um, to, you know, study at Evergreen, it was more of this interdisciplinary education. I started to see, uh, how, um, you know, literature for social change, um, was sort of, um, active in the world. And, uh, and I think that, you know, it wasn't just in any of these classes, it, it wasn't just the books, it was always um, also thinking about how do the, um, how, how are the concepts that are um, part of these books, how do they um, sort of motivate the conversations and ways in which we can um, engage engage with the world. Um, so I would just say, sort of broadly speaking, this is sort of what I've carried with me even into SIFT as well. Um, and you know, even before SIFT, a lot of the short stories I was working on uh, were um, an attempt to, you know, um, create sort of create a space that uh, could contain the bigness of something like, um, you know, climate change or um, any kind of social injustices, while also, you know, inviting the, these intersections and um, multiple versions of truth. Uh, and, you know, within the story, within that container, 
my hope is that, you know, it can like you can sort of locate your own agency. So for me, that's what literature has always been. Uh, and it's always sort of my attempt when I go to the page is how can I make it a space that is expansive enough for others who for others to sort of see all of these aspects, these large aspects of society in a way that is absorbable um, and uh, and perhaps, you know, um, a catalyst for new ideas and um, new ways of engaging with the world. That is, um, that was very clarifying for me. Also something about my own experiences with zine writing, which we share in our backgrounds, but the ways that that sort of cross genre form of a zine, it's not just that you're pulling in multiple sort of literary or visual modes, but also um, that it has a social life attached mm -hmm. to it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, yeah, what you just shared is such an elegant description of um, of what what kind of container a literary form can be and that sort of generosity and inviting in, I think, is um, just an ethics that I really admire about your work. But I think it's interesting because it, based on our past conversations and what I know about SIFT, it also came out of a time in which social life shut down. In, you know, it was begun during the first part of the pandemic. So I'm wondering if you might be willing to speak to sort of that seed of the project and maybe why other kinds of writing that you were doing at that time um, were no longer sort of whatever projects you had on the table prior to the pandemic were no longer sort of um, relevant or actionable in the same way that this project became yeah, that's a good question. I I suspect the reason I couldn't access those pieces before the pandemic was because there was such a dramatic shift uh, in how um, how how I was how I was in the world. So as you said, you know, this was a you know of course a, this time of being shut off from the world and. Um, I think, uh, I had felt that, um, whatever, like, whatever I could create in this time had to just be, um, made out of, uh, the sort of soil that we were in, in that moment. Um, and I, and I, I mean, it, it was, it was strange because I mean, this is just sort of me, like trying to puzzle out what was happening because really it was mostly an emotional thing. I just couldn't, I couldn't enter into those old stories. It just, I, I wasn't able to have fully have access to it. And so um, instead I felt like what I needed to do was really face some of the fears that I was having um, so sometimes when I, you know, have a block with my writing, I, I've learned to over the years recognize when that block is, um, because I have too much kind of going on in my head, um, or there's something that's emotionally heavy that I just need to accept and deal with. 
and so I kind of clear away all of my writing projects and just spend time writing to whatever um, is uh, sort of blocking me or whatever is on my mind. Uh, and so really SIFT began there. I thought of it at the time as one of these therapeutic exercises that I've done over the years where I just write out all of, you know, my fears or self-doubts, insecurities, all of like the things that are kind of clouding my head and my heart about the world. Uh, and it's, um, it's a type of it's a type of purge, though sometimes there have been, you know, little little parts of those um, writing exercises that I've been able to recycle into something more formal. But mostly, I've thought of it as just you take fifteen minutes and let your you know let your mind wander, um, sort of open your soul to the page and uh, and allow for that. And so that's kind of where SIF started. It was my fears at the time of loved ones dying and specifically my mother dying uh, of COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it was at the, like the early stages, um, I, I had these letters that I was writing to um, this fear of my mother dying, which turned into letters writing to a dead mother, which turned into this larger story. Uh, and so um, I, I kind of followed that into a space that I didn't realize um, was very present in the moment, but it was a, a space of this anticipatory grief for humanity, um, something a lot larger than just one individual um, that and and I didn't I don't know if before SIFT I realized that I was carrying this around with me. Um, so once that started happening, I felt like this is this is the only thing I can write now. I like <laughs> there was that um, real uh, like energetic sort of push to continue. Yeah, that um, portal from individual grief or fear, or even just the global catastrophe of the pandemic itself already so huge in its scale being a portal then to thinking about the global catastrophe that is the climate crisis. Right. Um, yeah. And sort of those doorways that we walk through and following like a little trace of a feeling or a dilemma that might be personal and emotional. Yeah, that, that there's so much wisdom in, in that permissiveness to just sort of tend to what's active and um, troubling in the moment. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing that origin story of SIFT. Um, I am so excited to ask you this question. Um, but so we start with these seeds of a project and then they shapeshift and take form as we like try to wrangle them into something like a novel. Um, and it's, it's interesting because shapeshifting is a phenomenon that plays out in the characters a little bit, or, or at least in this vehicle that they travel through. And so um, I'm really curious to hear, I guess your a little bit about your process of bringing form to SIFT 
from that um, seed or from, I, I mean, I, you're already speaking to that and sort of writing these letters that then became sort of the seed of the novel. But, um, but yeah, how did you, how did you create the structure of the book? And maybe does, were you thinking about shape-shifting or sort of, mm-hmm. yeah, how did, how did those themes interplay? Yeah, so what I ended up doing in sort of the generative stages of SIFT was uh, opening the door to all of it. I just allowed everything in. Uh, And so it was sort of messy, uh, like, collection of fragments. Um, So there were letters to a dead mother. There were um, long passages that just described like a quality of feeling. Um, there were, you know, sort of this, um, these, these passages that were, uh, the research I was doing about moss at the time, um, and, and reading, um, gathering moss by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Uh, there were, um, notes from, uh, lectures I'd been listening to online. So, you know, some of uh, Anne Carson's lecture on corners is in there. And, um, you know, looking to other writers who, uh, you know, have um, created art during times of like chaos and despair. So reading, you know, a, a number like in, in SIFT, there's one um, in particular, there's the Toni Morrison essay that um, I'm trying to remember the name of now. It's, uh, the title is, um, No Place for Self-Pity, No Room for Fear in the Nation. Um, and so I, all of that I was collecting, basically. I was just gathering anything that I thought had to do with um, the um, idea of grief and um, sort of the fragmenting of memory and trauma and um, uh, the climate crisis uh, and... um, sort of intergenerational relationships. So there's some of my great-grandmother's journal entries that make it into the book as well. Um, So the generative stage was just about gathering, and I allowed myself to gather it all. Uh, And luckily with this project, um, there was one day where an ending presented itself to me. And I don't, this doesn't ever happen (laughs) Um, to me. I usually really struggle with endings, but I, uh, I was sort of gifted this one day. It just, it just sort of organically came. And once I, once I uh, saw that, I knew how to kind of go back and work on, uh, on rewriting and shaping the the narrative. So, you know, I really think about this with every project I do is just, it's just material at the very beginning, you know, you gather all of that material, you open the door and, um, and then from that material, I really try to think about um, how do I want to, uh, what are the sort of the questions or 
choices that I need to make now. Um, and so I approach revision with um, this sense of, um, I have somewhat of a philosophy, I guess, uh, some ideas of what I want to do with it. So I knew with SIFT that um, I it was going to be a sort of a fragmented narrative. I knew that I didn't want a, um, you know, a, a narrative that just is playing out, playing out the shape of the hero's journey again. I wanted a narrative that um, really uh, instead sort of um, troubles that, what I think of as sort of an inherited narrative that it's very easy to fall into the individual journey of, you know, um, that the character sort of enters into that it's it mostly is driven um, by you know this this sense of conflict, you know, uh, rising uh, action um, climax resolution, you know, th this kind of shape. I knew that this was going to be. Um, I wanted this to be a a story that isn't just about the individual um, and. So that really guided some of my choices about how um, the characters are on the page. Um, so I wanted, for example, Lamele is um, a character that is is many contains um, histories and uh, contains you know there there's a section in the book that describes how she you know is ideas and dreams and, um, and these many, many things. So I started thinking about character as not so much a like simulation of a human, but instead a what um, Milan Kundera says, an experimental self, um, what he calls an experimental self, thinking more about um, how, you know, these character concepts um, can be somewhat recognizably human to us, but also be so much more than that on the page. Um, so that, you know, uh, really influenced my thinking about characterization. Um, the sections where they're, you know, throughout the book, there are these short fragments that are um, gesturing toward the non-human uh, elements of the story. Um, and I knew that those needed to have a very different sound quality than the, the, the sort of human driven story. Um, and that they can operate in a couple different ways is a, a way of thinking about the out, the, um, what's going on sort of on, in the outside of these characters' consciousness or the, the main characters' consciousness. Um, but also they can sort of provide a rhythmic quality, a sort of pause in between as well. And so a lot of these choices were me just looking through the material and then like what are, what are some more um, – theoretical concepts that I really, um, that can help me in shaping this. Uh, and then once I had that idea, um, you know, I guess one other thing I will say about, you know, some of the, um, you know, the, the theoretical concepts is that there was a sense that I, um, 
I, I really wanted to, um, you know, even at the sentence level, trouble, like the like sort of binary oppositions. So really being conscious about, um, you know, how anytime there is um, a, you know, a, a word that really often is paired with its binary, um, try, trying to really trouble that. Um, so thinking about like, you know, um, heaven, earth, uh, you know, male, female, um, you know, culture, nature, um, you know, white, black, um, all of these like things that, you know, are, um, ways, ways in which we often, uh, you know, I guess how language can be so so complicated in this way of as soon as we hear one word we think about it's binary so anytime anytime you know it, like nature and culture is set up um I, I tried to like bring in the ways in which they're they're enmeshed um the ways in which there are these gradations in between these binaries that are really important and nuanced um so I tried to do that like sort of on the sentence level as well as on the, the story level. Um, yeah. Such an elegant description of your process that I feel like just relayed so much information. I feel like you answered a couple like sub questions I had related to this already because I was thinking about allegory mm -hmm. and maybe where that came in. And I feel like perhaps that is the ethic of, um, allowing the characters to be uh, penetrated by the world, you know, or to see that they, that penetration is um, intrinsic. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps also like, I think the, I perceive as a reader that one of the premises, the premise of the novel is that the self and the world are not separate right. and that the crises of the world cannot be separated from sort of the self. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, thank you for that elegant answer. Um, can I ask you a little bit about where time fit into that shaping? Mm -hmm. Like the, the time of the novel and sort of where the axis of time and events fit into these questions about sort of, um, I guess, the philosophies that you were drawing mm -hmm. on or that, that element of the revision or the shaping process. But yeah, how did you work with mm -hmm. time and story? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, so the book has really, I think three temporalities. So there's the forward moving narrative of the, the characters just trying to survive. Um, and then there's sort of this backward moving narrative where, um, you know, we get some of these moments of memory um, from primarily from the um, uh, the 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 main character Tortula, and then there are there are the um, the the short fragments threaded throughout of the non-human, which are I think of as sort of atemporal, maybe um, a little bit like existing in time, but a little outside of uh, like a linear time idea. Um, and so, uh, I, I think that, 
the choices with that, um, probably there's a couple things that come to mind. I think the first, um, the sort of the, the traumas that um, both characters go through but before they start their journey uh, and end up kind of invading um, their, you know, present day, like how this happens with, with um, you know, anyone who's gone through trauma is that there are these, you know, moments where you're going about your everyday life and just trying to get by and then suddenly a memory or a feeling or something um, intrudes on your present. And it, you know, sometimes it can be very clear, oh, this is something that is from my past. Um, or sometimes it, it can be um, really ambiguous and you don't know where it's coming from. Uh, and I think that this is what both characters are experiencing as they're trying to survive. There are still these moments of intrusion. Um, and so with uh, Tortula, the, it, it it looks more like, um, you know, this m sort of mourning for her mother and her conversations that she has to sort of in her in her head um, to to her mother uh, or with her mother, um, and uh, you know, sometimes calling up memory as a type of medicine, um, just as a, an appreciation for the life that she lived at one point in time, although I think she can sometimes escape too far into her imagination so that she's not as present in, in the, the um, moment. Uh, and this is something that I think is, is sort of a challenge for her. With Lamele, it's, uh, it's definitely a more sort of ambiguous um, and, and far greater type of trauma or grief in the sense that it's um, not so located to one person. Like with, with uh, Tortula, she has these specific memories about things that she lived with her mother in some cases. And those are the things that are kind of intruding with um, Lamele. We're a little outside of her perspective, so we don't fully know. But um, it, it, we do know that she grieves or that she expresses pain in these um, ways that are that described sort of as in this fantastical way in the book. Um, but I think to me, it was like a way of trying to get to the ambiguous grief that um, many of us car carry around with us that has to do with um, not only our ancestry, but with humans, but with animals and with the, the, the land and the planet and all of that. Um, and so it ends up being more environmental. How she grieves is um, by ex extract, like she, um, uh, like, it's sort of this cloud that is um, extracted from her body or this, this uh, you know, um, pond that she ends up kind of vomiting onto the pavement it's you know uh like the these these moments of where where she's um like trying to let it come loose from her body in some way uh and so i um i'm trying to remember your question <laughs> your oh, original no. question at this point um, um how how you worked with time in the narrative yes. and like maybe right. some of the challenges of that and like kind yeah. of because you have this really yeah. elegant like 
so like such a nuanced philosophical approach to time as it plays out. And I was mm-hmm. also thinking of this um, with respect to trauma and your research mm-hmm. that you were doing around trauma and memory. Right. Um, so I'm, I would love any any insights you might share on like how, or I guess your experiences working with that in mm-hmm. making that sort of present in the writing and like, mm-hmm. um, because I just feel like the technology of time is so challenging in experimental work. I mean, just, I think in general, mm-hmm. but in particular mm-hmm. when, when you're not moving se- sequentially and when there isn't like this clear sort of perhaps narrative arc that might be predictable or familiar. So, um, mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, just your, mm-hmm. your process rendering time or working mm-hmm. with time yeah. in, in the writing itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, this shows up in the shape and how, um, the sort of the, the the fracturing of memory and how um, the there will be moments. This happens, I think, a lot in um, the sections where the two characters are in a helicopter. But there are these, you know, moments where um, Tortula, the main character, is uh, sort of reeling around in her memories and trying to be present, but really struggling to and um, I I think a lot of that had to do with like trying to set up a rhythm uh early on so that that that's that is um locatable for the reader and so when it gets into that swirling kind of space where time is you know it's it's happening where there is it we're in the past and the present of one character all at once it becomes um a, a space that the reader can actually enter into because they've been given a little hints, uh, you know, um, earlier on. Uh, and so it's about, I think, developing somewhat of like rhythms, or you could even say like lexicon around that and helping maybe, um, the, like, I guess, you know, teaching the reader how to read those moments so that when they come, they come up, um, it, it doesn't maybe feel as confusing as it, as, um, if you didn't have those little, I guess, hints or signposts earlier. Um, but a lot of this, you know, was, I think, in the editing stages too. These, this, uh, I, I remember early on uh, with the third thing, um, the first round of edits that I got um, from Allison Bailey had to do with, there, there were some there were some notes, but then there was also a time a timeline that she sent to me um, that she wrote out of the, the the backstory of the character as well as sort of the forward moving. I think it was primarily the backstory and what she she was seeing, uh, and that made me realize that there were a lot of things that I actually did need to sort of fill in and help the reader along with. Uh, so sometimes it's a matter of getting that outside perspective. Um, but but yeah, I think, you know, there were a lot of other, um, you know, writers that helped me with this too, this idea of time and um, the, like the, the fracturing of memory um, as well. And so, you know, I, I think like I was reading um, Parable of the Sower at this time uh, and there, there are some of, you know, some, I think, examples in there and in that book. I was also reading um, uh, Donica Kelly's The Renunciations. It's a collection of poetry and how she 
engages with with trauma in that book I really respect because it's um, kind of around being able to um, say the like speak about the wound very simply and kind of plainly not trying to hide it in metaphor um, but to just to just speak it but then also to choose to choose to have the agency of like when not to say the thing so in that book she has these some some sections where there are these brackets and there's just a space in between the brackets and so there's like the silence that's that um is almost this sort of kindness of like these are the things I will say and this is what I will not say and that was something I guess I was also thinking about with SIFT is when to um you know when to uh speak and just plainly say the things that happened um like this comes up with Tortula and some of the violences she's experienced um to be able to say the things that she remembers but then to also be okay with there's going to be some maybe ambiguous trauma that she can't access because of what happens when we when we experience something that you know is is a violence the there is the moment of the fracturing of memory you don't always remember these moments because you're in sort of this survival other space um and so that was something else i was thinking about how can i um have that how can i convey that on the page um, in a way that felt authentically, like a way that felt, that felt true to the emotion. And, and Donica Kelly's book, I think really gave me a lot of permission and how, how to approach that. Mm. And that maybe is like a part of the rhythm or sort of like the musical structure that readers have been taught to expect where there are these gaps, you know, like that time isn't necessarily filled in or created by presence, but also absence. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. But I think that's such a um, helpful, really, yeah, really insightful and helpful description of working with time, you know, both that fiction, sort of the fiction devices where we have story and the events are externalizing those concepts, like you described with the helicopter, but then also the, um, the prosody or sort of the poetics where, the um yeah the the musical structure the rhythm is also creating a sort of predictable um yeah the lex lexicon that's a really mm -hmm. um fabulous mm -hmm. word for that um and you just spoke a little bit about the editing or and revision process with um third thing the third thing press Allison Bailey one of the editors there mm -hmm. um I wanted to ask about so certainly you have a background in poetry and this might be part of what you bring to this sparseness um, and sort of working with the, the sentence as a unit of the prose that, you know, sometimes there are, you know, a, a paragraph is a sentence. So there's like the mm -hmm. sparseness there. Mm -hmm. um, but then also the just this, the things that you're writing about are so big and um, there isn't a resolution. Like we don't get we don't have a resolution around the climate crisis in the present, you know, as readers right. and you as the writer. And um, I'm just curious about your thoughts around leaving things undone um, and whether you feel like that is something that's easy to do 
as a writer or whether one might need to sort of get feedback Mm -hmm. to know what is too much, um, Mm -hmm. what is too much emptiness or unknown. Yeah. I think that I had some ideas when, um, I was working on revision, uh, I also do what I call parallel writing, and that's sort of asking uh, the book questions. Um, parallel writing, I think of as it can be many things, you know, like maybe it's interviewing one of the characters, or maybe it is, um, you know, right, like creating a, a map of the world. Um, and for me, um, and maybe I was kind of guided by. Um, some of what I've been seeing in, uh, I don't know, some more interdisciplinary or multimedia works, um, like collections of writing that um, actually include a lot of questions about the writing. Um, So I'm thinking of right now, um, Susan Briante's Defacing the Monument, um, and certainly a lot of the work that Fred Moten puts out as well, where they're the, they just include some questions um, to sort of to writers. Um, they they engage with the idea of like what does it mean for us to have a poetics and what what does like how 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 do you want to be socially engaged with your work basically. And so I think at this at this time when I was working on Sift, I was I took a lot of the questions that Susan Briante poses in Defacing the Monument and I answered all of them. Uh, and and some of the um, you know the 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 questions that came up um, or some of the answers I guess that came up helped me figure out my poetics or my aesthetics with this this um, project. Uh, so it was this combination of having the poetry background and really loving, um, you know, the the sort of l- lyricism of the line, but then also uh, recognizing that I um, I, I also that it's part of this project is to have some sort of slipperiness, uh, and there was something about the, um, you know, the. the the sentences, the characters, the whole, the story as a whole. I mean, the idea of time, I, I wanted it all to be somewhat slippery. Um, and, uh, and so it took some extra, uh, certainly some, some work when I was going back and crafting it, um, sentence by sentence to be able to find some of that, um, cadence, the slippery cadence that I needed. Um, but but yeah, I think uh, you know it was it was helpful to um, you know, think about the um, you know the the aesthetics and how it does connect sort of to the ethics and what I really wanted for um, you know sort of this grand hope for the project, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> the collaborative element that comes in also in like leaving Mm -hmm. that opening. So um, the gaps that we just discussed around Mm -hmm. trauma, it's like there's also the ways that leaving that opening becomes an invitation for the reader to participate in the process. And I think that that Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, it, maybe it's not just the like the ways that others enter into the process in an editorial sense, but the ways that others enter into the process in grounding sort of the purpose or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, the aesthetics and politics of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, there were so many good conversations that I had with um, Anne DeMarkin at The Third Thing to the other editor uh, around, you know, the choices with the aesthetic and how to sequence um, you know, I, I did have, you know, the great fortune to go to the third thing in Olympia and we printed out all the pages and put them on the floor and, uh, spent the entire day talking about the sort of the sequencing. And I feel like those conversations, um, you know, not only taught me more about what I was wanting to do with this particular project, but also what I'm wanting to do as a writer and artist in the world. And I just, they're like incredibly, I don't know, meaning, meaningful to me that, um, the third thing would, um, be willing to have those long conversations to talk through, uh, the, the choices and to help me understand the project better, to help me understand, um, what you know what what I'm wanting to do with other work too um yeah yeah there was um something so we had a chance to read together and at browsers books in Olympia celebrating the release of SIFT and um there was a really like lovely comment that somebody shared at the end um in the Q&A portion about their experiences hearing you read from SIFT. And um, I was wondering, I mean, this feels related in the sense that you had said something around creating room through the book, which is also what you said at the beginning of our conversation today, but um, that there is this, one of the guiding goals was to create the sort of like ability to grieve um, and sort of breathe through the work. Um, And I know this would be, there's so many directions that we could go in to talk about sort of breathing and the ways that that, um, you know, can be like metaphorical for the work, taking things in and letting things out. But um, I'm just wondering if you might be willing to speak to a little bit about this idea of breathing room. Um, Yeah, in your work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the this worked its way into the draft early on and it really was um because i was uh, at the time uh writing as a type of therapy and it was something i needed to do for myself and so it just uh worked its way into the text or the moments of of breath that the characters take it was because i needed a breath in that moment um, and I also loved, um, you know, this, that comment at browsers, um, because, you know, the person also said that it, um, when I was reading it aloud, may, had, had, it was um, a moment they took in a breath. And so it was some, something that we were not only sharing words in that moment, but also breath. Um, and so, yeah, I think... Uh, the the breath shows up in different ways in the text. So there is those moments uh, where the, the characters actually breathe and sip um, uh, the air. So one of 
you know, they call sipping the air, um, sifting. Uh, And and so there there are those moments, but then there are also um, the moments of pause uh, in between these very short chapters. There are the short fragments of the 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 non-human that I think of as almost a breath, like recognizing this, you know, it's sort of a, a, a pause from the human-centered narrative and recognizing the shared, the shared existence. Um, and I think of, you know, I, I think of that sort of like, like a breath. Um, what else do I want to say about this? Uh, I think there's more. Oh, there's, um, you know, when I was working, when I was thinking about shape with, with SIFT, um, I was really wanting to um, draw on the natural world, and it seemed um, to make sense to think of moss. Uh, and since moss is non-vascular, uh, it draws its nutrients from the air. Uh, and so I wanted, the when I envisioned SIFT and just um, thinking about it, like, the text visually, I thought about it as patches of moss that is connected in these like white space or the air connects them. Um, so that's, I think, another aspect of sort of the breath and how it how it is, um, you know, or at least air, you know, how that is sort of played played out in um, the, you know, the choices with shaping in the book. And that editorial or collaborative process of, of reshaping, it seems like that's also mm-hmm. a place where the air or the breath comes in too yeah. in, in those gaps. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that's just, I was, I was so, um, I loved the acknowledgements and the way that you arranged them at the end and sort of mm-hmm. divided by element and the ways that air, the air element was sort of where the mm-hmm. editorial and collaborative that's um, right. side of the process came in. So yeah. I was thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely want to make sure to ask you about your approach to literary community or creative community, um, sort of with that in mind. And I just feel like you embody um, clearly in your work, like the strong ethics of sort of generosity and collaboration and um, commitment to community and also in your um just the things that you put out there in the world that are about writing and sort of this generosity to the community in that way. And I'm wondering if you might have any um, advice for those of us who might be struggling to sort of put our oar in the stream, so to speak, of finding our place in a creative community and um, approaching that in a way that is that feels um, non-competitive or not like... Mm-hmm keeping abreast of what's going on. Um, yeah, so just any advice around creative community or things you might be willing to share about your approach to that? Yes, uh, I really thank you for that question. And thank you. Um, I'm glad I'm glad that um, uh, to be in this like literary ecosystem with you <laughs> um, and all of the others. Um, I, I think um, I think the number one thing that would help is to um, read more literary journals and read more zines. Um, I think there is so much emphasis, uh, you know, put on the 
and maybe it's just because it's what we're what we're seeing it's being marketed to us but you know the 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 best sellers and trying to maybe connect with an MFA you know or all of all of these um, things which I have done and I and I did find value but I think that for me what has been most um fruitful has been the connections that I've made with editors at literary journals um, and the and reaching out to writers earlier in their career Uh, so if they're doing a zine or doing um, you know you you read something in a literary journal that um, you love to just reach out to that writer and say say a couple words they are going to be so thankful for that and I I do see um, that there are some really exciting journals, you know, like The Gravity of the Thing and Shirley Magazine that are doing such exciting, vibrant, uh, good work for our literary ecosystem, um, you know, really inventive writing. Um, and uh, and so I just, I, I want to see, you know, maybe to see more support of, of those spaces. Um, and and I honestly feel like it's it's been th- those kind of connections for me have continued on in you know into my adulthood and um, and I'm just really sort of grateful for the writers and editors of you know literary journals and zines. Um, so that I think was one. I think um, you know being involved in the community and being in the world with people as much as you can, um, going to readings. And, um, you know, if you don't uh, see, you know, if you're not connecting with people at readings, actually making the step to create a group on your own. And I think that there are ways of doing this. One thing that I did years ago and that was was a, a big success for a long time was um, uh, I I put out a call for writers through Meetup, actually, um, and it was to, to do a writing group. But I had some very specific, uh, you know, um, intentions with the group. Uh, I knew that I wanted to, um, you know, write with people who um, were doing mostly short fiction and who were doing, um, you know, more uh, like a, who, who are interested in experimenting with form. Um, and so I, you know, I, I had a couple questions through Meetup about what do you read? Uh, and just like this small, you know, having these, you know, clear intentions written out, and then a couple questions that were sort of specific to the um, the writing in the group helped me sort of winnow down a group that was really amazing and that went on for three, but about three years. Um, and, uh, you know, and we met, you know, every other week uh, and exchanged writing. And I think that a lot of times I hear from people um, you know, how do I find other writers? How do I find a group? And a lot of times it is actually about, you know, creating, um, like creating, like writing out some of your intentions for what you want out of a writing group and then going from there. And sometimes what you'll notice is, or at least what I noticed was, I'm not seeing in the world in where I am, uh, you know, a group that's this specific, but maybe if I put a call out, there will be other people and, and um, they're, you know, Sure enough, there were there were. So uh, I think sometimes you'll be able to find a, a group that works, but 
oftentimes it's a matter of, you know, kind of de- designing it on, on your own too. Um, I think in terms of the, you know, competitiveness, um, even in, you know, in an MFA program, like um, I was at the at Pacific University, it was, you know, well over 10 years ago um, that I got my MFA, but I didn't in that environment feel like a, a sense of um, competition. I, 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 w- I was lucky enough to be in workshops that felt very nourishing. And, um, you know, I think part of this was, you know, some some of the people who were facilitating were very thoughtful in how they facilitated. Um, and I know even with Pacific, this is, it's, it's, the program has grown so much and it's very exciting to see that on their, on their website, they include the, the instructor's bios along with their approach to, to, to workshop, their philosophy to the writing workshop, which is amazing and would have helped out so much when I was in the MFA program. I'm so glad they're doing it now. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, um, if, you know, you're lucky enough to get in a group where everyone is, um, sort of guided by a facilitator who, who recognizes that we're here for a shared cause, which is to, you know, uh, in, in, embrace writing and literature and recognize that we all sort of struggle with this. Um, and we're, but we're, we're, these are not finished drafts, so we're all kind of collaborating uh, in, in this moment. I think once that is that kind of space is cultivated, it can be it can be really exciting to see because everybody is invested. Um, I think that when I've had the experiences where it's just obvious that there is like there is some um, competition, maybe even healthy competition. Um, I don't know. Like it's just not somewhere that I I I stay for very long. <laughs> um, I think it's natural to come up. I mean, I think that you know that's going to happen. But I um, I don't know. I, I I usually at that those times sort of uh, just because of my tendency kind of distance dis- distance myself. But that that's all just to say that you know it, there's so many we all do this so differently and I can see, I can kind of see healthy competition as being an okay thing too. It's just when it gets to that place of, um, you know, it being the only thing that, uh, I think it can be a, you know, it can be a, a struggle. Yeah. That was so helpful. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Um, what are you, are, is there anything that you're working on now that you've, mm-hmm released set? Yes. So I um, am, am working on a collaborative project uh, called Delisted, which is um, creative engagement with uh, endangered species. It's something that's being organized by the writer Jennifer Culkins, uh, who is also another Third Thing writer. Uh, she wrote Fugitive Assemblage, and she's also a... Um, an, um, uh, evolutionary biologist and lawyer. Uh, and she has uh, kind of, she, she sort of uh, 
uh, spearheaded this project, uh, invited writers and artists to do this, this creative engagement with um, endangered or extinct species, and assigned each person um, a species. And so I have the um, great pleasure of getting to know this uh, um, this bird, the Kauai U'u bird from Kauai. Uh, and uh, so I have been um, spending a lot of time listening to audio of this bird, the bird song, and writing alongside uh, the audio and um, also doing this log where I uh, record every time, um, every new fact that I learn about the Kauai U'u, but also every time I share a conversation about the birds. So I will include uh, our mm-hmm. conversation in that log. Um, and I'm just excited. It's going to, I, I'm going to be able to see some of what the other, other other writers and artists have done with this project here in just, I think it's December is when it culminates. Although I feel like this is now something I'm going to, I'm going to always sort of carry this bird with with me. Uh, it's It's been a really, um, uh, I don't know, pow- powerful and um, moving project uh, to to think about this extinct bird and um, what it what it means for, to our our planet um, and um, to grieve in this way for you know a, a species I didn't even really know existed until I started doing this project. So mm. it's. Um, uh, that's that's been meaningful, um, and I'm also um, doing some writing consultations. So I am, you know, working with people on their books, uh, you know, and and helping um, with their their drafting process. I'm um, also a writing group facilitator, and have been loving that um, experience of. Uh, you know, just helping, helping um, guide a, a, a group being sort of the, um, the relieving people of the duties that no one really wants to do for a writing group primarily. So, you know, helping move the conversation along or redirect it or getting, you know, like holding people accountable, these kind of things. Um, that are sometimes hard to do, especially when people are used to like having a formal writing group or an MFA setting. Um, so that's been lovely to be sort of welcomed into some of those groups and to help out with that. Uh, and um, I have started a new novel as well, and it's early in its stages. Uh, so can't really talk too much about mm-hmm. it, but I'm glad that it started. I love all of that and love kind of seeing the ways that that same commitment to collaboration and community and um, being awake with the world is showing up in your next endeavors. So thank you so much for meeting with me, talking with me. I feel like I learned so much from our discussion about writing and about um, about those commitments. So thank you for being here. And um, before we fully close out, would you be willing to share ways that listeners might be able to find SIFT, your novel, um, and sort of stay connected with what you're doing? I'd be happy to. So um, people can 
uh, find SIFT through the Third Thing website or uh, at any independent, their favorite independent bookstores. Um, and they can contact me through my website, alyssahatman.com. And uh, there's more information about the projects that I've been, um, that I've worked on, as well as um, writing consultation and other, other things there as well. Uh, I'd love to hear, hear from anyone. Yeah, definitely reach out. And um, mm-hmm. don't forget to sign up for Alyssa's newsletter, Murmur. It's truly a joy and always very substantive. So highly recommend. And um, thank you so much, Alyssa. Thank you, Silo. These are wonderful questions. Thank you for helping me think through my work in new ways. It's been a pleasure. So that's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. You'll find a list of authors and other sources that were mentioned in the show notes of today's episode, and you'll also find a link to a transcript. This conversation was recorded at the very end of September, and now it's mid-November as I'm putting it together, starting to slow down for the end of the year, and I have some ideas brewing for the year ahead, so we'll see if 2024 ends up setting a different pace, but I think that this will be a wrap on the very first year of experimental practice. Um, If you'd like to be notified of when the next episode comes out, you can sign up for my newsletter and you'll find a link um, in the show notes as well. And in the meantime, I hope that you enjoy this dark, quiet time of the year if you're listening right when this episode came out and all of the possibility that slowing down invites.